Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast. Today we are talking about a very well-respected author, Ursula K. Le Guin. I am your host, Michael Vujicic, joining you from Whitehorse, Yukon. And my guests today are... Marie Gajmarak, as so is often the case. And Corey Toke. From Edmonton, Alberta. We have a lot of snow here, too. I should probably inform listeners that we were supposed to record this podcast, oh, a year ago. No, 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 no. This is a new uh, new, new way of doing book reviews, of seeing what you remember a year later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for some reason we didn't get around to it till now, after I had forgotten most of the names of characters in the books we were supposed to discuss. And but maybe... No matter, we have cheat sheets. <laughs> and maybe some parts of the plot. Parts. <laughs> so I think it's fair to say that Ursula K. Le Guin is a good writer. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Ursula K. Le Guin is not only recognized in science fiction and fantasy as an exceptional author, she's also recognized just in general as one of the great writers in the United States today, having work appearing in place, such sundry places as The New Yorker and Playboy magazine. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't raunchy at that time. Indeed. Well, keeping in mind, in the 60s, it was actually a good place to publish sci-fi because they paid well. They paid very well. She was very happy with those sales. Eh. So Ursula K. Le Guin, her father was an anthropologist, her mother was a writer. The father as an anthropologist part is fairly obvious when you read her work. Hmm. In a good way, fortunately. Man, that almost sounds like things are... You can't d- d- detach whether it's nature or nurture that made her awesome. Cute. No, but she does have a very great interest in human cultures and just different cultures and how they interact. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that comes across quite a bit. Beautiful writing. Absolutely. She began as a poet, which kind of explains that great writing part of her actual prose. Um, mm-hmm. Started publishing in small literary magazines, found she wasn't getting much recognition or money that way, so she jumped ship for science fiction. Poetry will do that to you. We're happy to have her if it's any (laughs) consolation. Yay! Yes, we are very happy to have her. She's one of the major practitioners of what other people have called soft science fiction, in that she is most interested in language, cultures, and societies, rather than in the nuts and bolts of... Atoms! Physics! Well, it's science fiction as imagination is the vehicle for ideas, not let's see how detailed of a blueprint we can give you of this blimp. See Kim Stanley Robinson. (laughs) Yes. See us. So I wouldn't call the works that we are going to be considering here today hard science fiction. I think that's fair to say. I agree on that one, yeah. I agree. I just think it's a dumb term, but that's a different podcast argument. Yes, we can talk about that another time. Not today. Yay. <laughs> so the two major works that we're considering are The Left Hand of Darkness, first published in 1969, winner of the Hugo and Nebula Awards, probably her most famous and most influential work. The other book that we're considering is The Word for World is Forest, which first appeared as a novella in Again Dangerous Visions, and was later expanded into a full-length novel, which is still pretty short. Having read both versions, like, the difference in some parts are literally just a couple paragraphs. 
We chose these two works because, number one, they're considered important and influential. Number two, they both take place in the Hainish universe, which is Le Guin's shared idea of the future, which a lot of her books are set in. Yep. The general premise behind the Hainish cycle is that all the planets, or ha habitable planets in the galaxy, were seeded originally from a world called Hain. Mm -hmm. And many, many years later, people called Mobiles are sent out, who have been educated in Hain, to explore various planets and find what these divergent cultures have been doing in the past few millennia. <laughs> it's effectively the ancient astronaut theory, just on a galactic scale. You've got one seed species that is responsible for creating multiple forms of humanity across multiple planets. Humans from Earth are one form, the forms encountered on other planets are alien in that they're different, but they're still human in their own way. And they were known for doing some genetic experimentation when they were up to this. Ooh. Which we'll get to in the left hand of darkness. There is no hyperdrive or faster than light travel in the Hainish cycle. It's true. Which means that there is no overarching imperial government. There is a shared League of Worlds called the Ecumen. Yes. Which I think is a great name. <laughs> Sorry, this might be my remembering things incorrectly. I thought there was faster than light travel, but because of all the things in how physics works, that if you travel at light speed, a lot of time passes, even though it only seems like a short time for you. Yeah, they are not going over the speed of light. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're going near the speed of light, oh. which due to relativity means that the time that passes between planets is in light years. Got it. We totally so remember we... everything about these books, folks. <laughs> So, when mobiles are sent from Hain, or there is interstellar travel, hundreds, decades will pass, sometimes hundreds of years will pass. So if you leave your home planet to be educated in Hain, you're essentially giving up your life entirely. Yes. Because none of your family is going to be alive when you get back. Fortunately, some of the sticky parts of this setup are solved by a device called the Ansible. Yes. Which allows instantaneous communication between any place in the universe. Through magic! The invention of this is documented in her other novel, The Dispossessed, should anyone be interested. Cool. I'll have to read that one, too. Maybe in a year we can do a podcast on it. So now we will begin with The Left Hand of Darkness. Not actually that difficult a plot to get through. You, no. you have, you... as your main character, Jenny I who's a human, I think from Earth, actually. And he's on the planet Gethin, where we have a unisexual world. So everyone there is generally neuter, except for a particular time of the month where they go into what is called Kemmer, and they might assume either male or female roles, depending on how things are at that time. And that's pretty much the background. And Genli is the first uh, ambassador from the Ecumen, Hoping that to convince people on the planet that, oh, look, there's life in the universe and maybe you should come join us and stuff because that'd be cool. It is perhaps not the best choice for a mobile to send to that planet, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Um, one plot point that is established fairly early that's pr fairly important as well is that 
As mentioned, the people on this planet are gender neutral most of the month. Um, they are, however, still considered a species of humanity. And as far as the ecumen know, they're the only species to actually have that feature. Every other species created on, a, on every other planet still does have two sexes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when Genli I, the mobile, comes to Gethin, he's considered aberrant because he's constantly in Kemmer. Yes. Which is their state of being gendered during their mating cycles. Yes. We should also point out that another interesting thing about this planet is this general winteriness. It's frigid cold. It has poor uh, nutri- nutrient availability. So it's kind of a world on the edge, which adds kind of another level of um, interest because it does influence strongly the social structure of the Gethenians? The Gethens? The Gethens. Gethenians? I think it's Gethens. I like Gethenians, personally. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Gethens, but anyway. It's probably in the book somewhere. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the core of this novel is exploring this world without gender most of the time, but also the friendship that develops between Genli I and an inhabitant of this world named Estervan. Yes. Estervan... And I have a soft spot for narratives where people from wildly differing cultures forge strong friendships. Yep. So that's a bonus for this book. <laughs> uh, Estervan is the prime minister of one of the countries on the planet, which is called Carhide, as far as I can tell for the pronunciation, which is a monarchy, actually. The king's called Argavan. And... Um, Genli kind of gets into some issues fairly early on because of a thing in Carhide called Shifkathor, which is sort of their way of interacting, their cultural propriety, their undercurrents, their tact terms, and they have... Yes, it's imagine a Regency novel where someone from a lower class has to... Try and do some social climbing. Yeah, kind of. Chef Griffor is all that stuff that you have to learn. But what makes it more difficult for Jen Lee is that it's based in a neuter world and he can't quite grasp it initially. And this gets him in some trouble because first he thinks Estervin is trying to get him in trouble with the king and then he sort of insults the king and then he's on the run and he has to leave Carhide. Uh, and he goes to the kind of more, I don't know, I read it as kind of communist <laughs> country of Orgorain. Which seems more rational and a better place to try and complete his mission. Except they end up throwing Genli in jail. Um, While that's happening, Estrovin does something to upset the king. And I think it's literally something. Even he's not quite sure. Um, I'm just going to point out the characters of this gender-neutral society still use masculine pronouns. I think that was just Le Guin's way of keeping it simple. Um, Well, yes, the book does, and then Genli himself tends to gender people as male, and that's why he feels uncomfortable around these gender-neutral beings, because they're acting effeminate in his own eyes. So, Estrovin manages to annoy the king, is basically given 24 hours to get out of the country or be executed. Executed or something horrible, I'm pretty sure it was execution. Executed or just shot by somebody. Which is the same thing. (laughs) But what isn't what isn't revealed at this point is that Estrovin, despite Genli's kind of earlier premonitions, actually very strongly believes in Genli's mission and wants to see it succeed. So he goes in search of Genli to help him. Yes. And Genli is basically in a work camp, which I mean he is in a work camp. 
where uh, I believe the quote from Wikipedia when I reread the plot synopsis was a uh, work camp where you expect your prisoners to die of um, exposure, poor food, and uh, sterility medication. Well, it's a gulag. Yes. It is, but there's also another layer to it. Gulags, you send somebody to expecting them to die, but still them having a chance. This is very distinctly, there's no way out except dying. Like, the, the, there's no term you finish. There's no way you might, if you're lucky, pull through. This is very distinctly, the circumstances are engendered or designed to kill you slowly. So it is, in fact, a North Korean camp. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> I will make no comment upon that. <laughs> After this, we get the most famous sequence in the novel. The best parts! Oh my god, they cross the ice! The escape across the ice, which again, I have a soft spot for the escape across the ice. I wonder if that has anything to do with where you live. Just saying. (laughs) One would wonder. (laughs) What's cool about the escape across the ice is the first half of the book is setting scene, it's exploring this culture, it's exploring this world. The second half is literally a survival narrative. Like, it almost... Yes, it cuts out the entire rest of the world that she was exploring and just focuses on these two figures yeah. and the, the relationship that develops between them. And I think it's there where her really her poetic way of writing really comes out because it just becomes so vivid and alive as she's describing the, just the sort of physical nature around them, but also the two of them interacting in the precarious circumstances. Uh, we should make it clear that this is a glacier and they're trying to cross it. And I think one person or one group has kind of done it before, and it's, but it's, it's a difficult crossing, and it's kind of a 50-50 if they're going to live or not. Yeah, it's, they pursue it because they have a chance of survival versus a guarantee of death. Yeah. And we'll talk about it more, I think, when we actually get into the, um, uh, reviewing the book. Let's just finish what happens at the plot, because there's not much left. Okay? So, once they, they do get across the ice, sorry, spoiler alert, it's, it is the best part of the book, but they get across, and they end up back in Carhide, and, um, uh, generally sort of realizes that, oh, hey, Carhide wasn't the best country to start in because he was beginning to have his doubts uh, at the beginning of the book, and um, they work their way kind of back towards the capital. There's some um, fluffling around, and um, Estervan gets shot because he is still a wanted man in Carhide. A wanted say, person in Carhide. Sorry. For various <laughs> reasons that basically have to do with the king is a very fickle individual. Um, Genli is suddenly welcomed back, but Estervan is still banned, or still exiled. And yeah, as Marie said, because Estervan is exiled, he gets shot trying to escape back out of the country. Yes. And um, this is ter- tears a bit of a hole in uh, Genli, which again we'll talk about more later. But anyway, the king of, of Karhai agrees to um, reach out towards the Ekumen, and then the Ekumen ship comes down, and an interesting moment happens for Genli, and that's basically the end of the book. Yes, it's probably also worth pointing out, Genli has a series of colleagues in a ship in stasis, orbiting the planet, waiting for his call that's safe to come down. So, we can see the convenience of the narrative device that Le Guin uses for her various books at the Hainish Cycle, in that we, our main character is an Earth person, yeah. a Terran, and he is discovering this culture, biological phenomenon, and we see it through his eyes and slowly come to understand it at the same time as he is, which works quite well. It does. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. Our first moment of defamiliarization, of course, occurs with the king in that the king is pregnant, and it goes on from there with Genli... Uh, per- portraying various misdemeanors. 
and generally acting like an ass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I would almost dispute that, actually. The uh, part about the... I, sorry, I would almost dispute that that's our first moment of defamiliarization. This world, part a very important plot device is that this world is effectively going through an ice age. That's why food is scarce and they've got like i mean they've designed specific very high calorie foods and all this other special stuff they have shitty food i don't have any high calorie food they just eat a lot of it right so they okay fine they've created ways of eating a lot of food they've got special survival food that's used later but genli talks about how a normal eating utensil on this world is a tiny hammer used to break the ice on top of your soup Yes. So I, I think the defamiliarization I think is actually far more subtle than just the king is pregnant. There's a lot of very small little things that if you really look for them, it's like, okay, that's weird. It's not so weird that you can't wrap your head around it, but it's different enough. I suspecting that the difference here between your two points of view, guys, is that uh, one of you is kind of talking about the defamiliarization in terms of the gender, and the other is talking about in terms of the environment of the earth, of the planets there. Because I, I, the temperature worldliness is a different thing from the king is pregnant gender kind of thing. Fair enough. I, I do think they're linked. Like, I do think... I don't think you needed to make a foreign world, or foreign environment, I should say, for the story to work. I think it was just one extra layer to add to maybe mix in a little more defamiliarization. Let's go back to the most um, awesome part of the book, which is the race across the ice. Not so much race. As I was going to say, it's not really a race. It's them trying to survive a journey. Well, it's just interesting because, again, it gets into an interesting part of the culture where so much of the world is based on do you have enough physical energy units to get through this winter? And actually, how these people spend a lot of time sort of calculating the joules in, joules out <laughs> equation of, of their energy expenditure. And it's through this that Estrevan's able to calculate how well they will be able to get across the uh, across the ice. And uh, it's through that brilliance and careful careful uh, harnessing of resources that they are able to do this feat. Mm-hmm. One thing I like about the scene on the ice, actually, is um, there's a certain intimacy to it, because you've got two characters, they're alone, they don't understand each other, one of them at least has no understanding of the other at first, but as it progresses... Um, they gain that understanding. They start to see each other's point of view. I've read a couple of reviews of this book that describe it as a love story. I think I agree. I think it is. But what I really like about it is that there's no sex. Yeah. Um, there's one part Estrovan even tells Genli, I'm going into camera. Don't touch me because physical contact can initiate various stages of it. And that could cause a whole bunch of trouble for them in terms of survival. But it's like to actually have that moment, to make it a love story in terms of intimacy through familiarity with another person's point of view or with another person's attitude as opposed to like just jumping straight into the physical act of it. I kind of like how the relationship builds into this great loyalty and understanding for each other, which kind of in many ways only happens because Estrovan comes from this gender-neutral background. And I think in some ways is the point Ursula K. Le Guin's trying to make, mm. is that a lot of the misunderstandings between humans is based on a kind of gendered thing. She has that whole comment in the story about how there's not really war on this planet because nations don't have this uh, sexual frustration built up to fight each other, which in some ways I find that less convincing, but in other ways is, is interesting in, ha- in how it comes across, at least on this one-on-one relationship. I think it works as a, I think that idea works as a plot device. I don't know that it, it would. I don't know that I think it would apply to the real world, but 
But we're not talking about the real No, we're not. So I will, I'll concede it works well as a plot device. And in this case, it does not actually stop conflict. No. While there isn't massive warfare, there are small skirmishes and assassinations, from what I remember. Yeah, yeah. skirmishes along the borders are actually quite common, if I'm remembering correctly. And you've got people running you know, back. You've got small bands of refugees going back and forth. Mm-hmm. There's still sort of the sense that I got from the story that nationalism cannot truly develop the way it is developed on Earth or in other presumably Hainish worlds because you didn't have the sexual frustration of two genders. I think part of that is also you don't have a nutritious enough environment or calm enough weather to actually make it worth your efforts. Like, if you live in an ice age, you're going to have to be really pissed off to say, we're going over there to kill them. Like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I can still get angry when it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> can you wage war? Anyway, Michael, your thoughts, because we've been kind of dominating. So, com- coming back to a point that we had earlier, in the book, the Gathenians are called he when they're in this general gender-neutral state, which also reflects Genli Ai's own view on them. But I am wondering about the effect it has on the reader, everyone being still gendered as male in the pronouns even though in the actual text there is no yeah. gender to assign to them. Yeah, no, I, I know that threw me for a loop. Like, I found there were times, not through the whole book, but there are times when I'm reading it and he keeps saying, or sorry, Le Guin keeps writing he, he, he. And it's like, okay, on one hand, on one level, you know that this character has no gender. But on the other hand, it's very hard to wrap your head around that. You like the word "he" comes up so much, you start thinking of these people as male, and then you realize it's like, oh yeah, they're not. And I, I, I kind of find it took away a little bit because you start thinking male, but with female effects every now and then. But that's not truly what's going on with the Gathenians. They are neuter, and it's it's kind of too bad uh, that she didn't go for a gender-neutral pronoun, which, like, C or something like that. But I suppose that might have just made the language very annoying to read. I think that was intentional, though. Yeah? Like, I I think the gendered pronouns thing is very intentional because I I think it's chasing an effect similar to the one I described. It's supposed to be defamiliarizing. It's supposed to make you take a minute to pause and go, wait a minute, this is a different being, this is a different perspective. It could also be just from Jenny's point of view that he just thinks he, and that's why he's also surprised, because it is his... Is it his voice? Is it written first person? No, there are sections from Estrovan. It's third person limited. Yeah, there you go. I think that it does do a good job of playing with our own expectations and aligning how we're thinking about the Gathenians with how Genli is thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Also, I notice we're pronouncing his name differently. It's just me. I'd say, Listeners, I'm, please don't get confused. We're talking about the same person. I'm sorry, it's just me. I just want to say gently. I don't know why. <laughs> and I'm not stopping. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a deliberate device to put us in his mind frame and also play with how we we think about what our default gender is when we consider just ideas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we tend to think of he as the default, the male as the default. I think that's a fair way to a fair way to put it. I think part of it too is that we live in a world where gender is often perceived as being a binary. You've got male and female, and in the case of this society, that binary still exists, but only at certain times. The rest of the time, there is no binary. It's an interesting world where you can have someone who is your friend, and then at a different time. 
of what you're just both happen to be compatible, they are actually your sexual partner too. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily travel onwards once you both come out of camera. You can just be f- kind of friends again, although maybe closer friends. Well, I was going to say, it's very much... It's very much a society where love, affection, does very much exist between people. I mean, people do form partnerships, and they do have children, and they do form families. But I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering this correctly at least, um, those family units can be a little more fluid. Like, you don't have a lasting spouse. If you decide to mutually part, you can't. There's not a big deal about it. I think it also kind of takes, because if we went to the... I think this is Greek, but the philosophical state that for humans there's sort of three types of love, erotic love, um, familial love, and fraternal love being the kind of three kinds that that you have, fraternal being between friends. Mm -hmm. It sort of plays with that and becomes more fluid because your familial love, actually, I think it's kind of, you're always at least related to somebody that you came from in some way, Uh, but uh, you're fraternal and erotic loves can shift around all the time. It, that's kind of unsettling. Well, on the, one hand, on the one hand, they can shift. On the other hand, what's really interesting is you can also have all three at once. You've got, so you said familial, erotic, what was the third? Uh, fraternal. Fraternal, right? You can have somebody who is a close friend. You can have somebody who is a sexual partner, and you can have somebody who is treated as a spouse. They become a family member in that sense. Mm. So it is possible to have all three in this world. I see. Uh, in the introduction, or I guess the foreword to the edition that I read, Le Guin made a comment about how she had come under criticism back in 79, or 69, 1970, that she hadn't considered the prospect of homosexuality within this world, and that she had wished that she had explored it, but that the book was already out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about that, and I'm not sure if in that book itself there was a way it could have been addressed. Um, It would have had a lot of pages. Beyond an info dump. Well, it kind of is. Um, it's It's not addressed in great detail, but it's more addressing the perception and the attitudes people take towards it. Um... There are members of this population who are permanently in Kemmer, um, where they always have a definitive gender. They're always definitive, or sorry, a definitive sex, I should say. They're always definitively male or definitively female. And I think it's something like 2 to 4% of their population is made up of these individuals. Um, the, the word that these societies use to describe these people is perverts. That's how they describe them. And I think that that kind of gives a little nod to exploring homosexuality in this world because you're talking a time, I mean, this was again written in the late sixties. You're talking a time that wouldn't have been as accepting of homosexual individuals. So it's a way of kind of turning that back on the reader. It's a way of showing them. It's like, okay, well, what would it be like if you're the minority? Yes. There are characters who are considered as sexual aberrants within the text. They're not directly dealt with, but they are mentioned. There's mm-hmm. one in that sort of group of monks thing when they have that sitting in yes. a circle. Yeah, where they've got that weird Zen thing where they become like Superman for a couple hours. I know the ones who are permanently in Kemmer generally become holy men or holy women. Mm-hmm. I suppose that in Kemmer it could happen that because you're gendered by whoever your first mate is so that you become the opposite of whoever you mate first becomes in terms of sex. 
I thought you could flip back and forth. Yeah, no, the book the book does specify that. You can flip back and forth because it's a big deal that the king is pregnant because the king really wanted to be pregnant. But every past time the king had gone into camera with a partner, he'd adopted male sexual characteristics. Yeah. So that that is addressed. You do switch. That's right, because the heir was only a true heir if the king was female at that right. time. Right, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think... So Le Guin thought of that. I, awesome. I think it is... Yeah. Le Guin is so awesome when you think about her, even many a year in retrospect. <laughs> I, I think there is probably something mentioned about how if you form a lasting partnership, you're more likely to go into one than the other, but I... It is still left fluid. You still can go into both. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered that. Well... In closing on the left hand of darkness, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. One of the best reads ever. Yeah, persevere through the initial world building part. The uh, ice section will take your breath away, and it's in its beautifulness and its vulnerability and its exploration of very human, nevertheless, characters. Yeah, slightly <laughs> slow start, but the second half makes up for that multiple times over. I guess before we close on the left hand of darkness, I would like to discuss the famous rejection letter that she got from a certain editor at a certain publishing house. Really? I've not heard this one. Please tell. <laughs> yeah, no, no, <laughs> Dear Miss Kid, Ursula K. Le Guin writes extremely well, but I'm sorry to have to say that on the basis of that one highly distinguishing quality alone, I cannot make you an offer for this novel. The book is so endlessly complicated by details of reference and information the interim legends become so much of a nuisance despite their relevance that the very action of the story seems to become hopelessly bogged down and the book eventually unreadable. I'm assuming this is being the, sent to her agent. Yes. Okay. The, the whole is so dry and airless, so lacking in pace, that whatever drama and excitement the novel might have had is entirely dissipated by what does seem a great deal of the time to be extraneous material. I gotta wonder if someone got fired over that, because you've got a book that won the Hugo and the Nebula in the same year. It sold God knows how many copies, like... I, I, I think I can... Initially, I did kind of agree with that. I was like, well, I want to get back to the story. What's with all these extra story things? But as it became so so much echoes of, of what was happening, and echoes explaining something that I couldn't even really see from the core narrative, it was... It's awesome. Yeah, again, I, I can see that. There are details at the beginning that kind of seem out of place or slow, but once you get later on and you look back and you feel and see how those details are incorporated into the narrative as a whole, they're very crucial. Like, <laughs> So, the word for world is forest. Much easier plot. Um, it begins on the world of Atshi, <laughs> in which humans have come to... Uh, Settlers. They there are Athsians who are kind of small green monkey-like creatures on this planet, and they have been deemed to be not intelligent enough to count as like full peoples. So they have been effectively enslaved while they are the humans are kind of doing fairly evil industrial logging things on the planet. It's effectively Avatar, but well done. Um, yeah, like Marie said, the Athians are perceived as being not fully human, despite the fact that they are descendants of the Hain and they are sorry of the Hainish, and they are a different species of human. They have a very different culture. They have a very different approach to the world, um, which is why it literally leads them to seem comatose a lot of the time. Which is why people at first don't think they're actually people. 
Yes. There is, as a key player in the evil human camp, a certain Captain Davidson, who is basically the bad guy from Avatar, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, he... <laughs> he's a giant asshole. He's, he... he's a stereotypical <laughs> colonial officer from this type of narrative. He uh, enslaves, he abuses, he whips uh, his followers into a frenzy of attack upon the planet and people, and he is also paranoid, and I would almost say a little bit delusional. Um, yeah, shoot first, ask questions later. He's that kind of jerk who thinks he's the only one who has the strength of character to do what needs to be done, which is just his way of justifying his own ignorance. He stands out as an extremely unpleasant person. And he is memorable that way. He is memorable. I was going to say, even the officers he's serving with start to think he's a bit crazy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Actually, I- so you were talking about the comatose, comatose bit with the natives of this planet. Yeah. The- that is actually their primary means of sharing culture and ideas. It is in the shared dreaming net. Yes. Yeah, they go into this comatose state where... Effectively, they're daydreaming, but they're able, through those daydreams, to kind of share with each other and to to pass on cultural knowledge. And an important point is that the natives have no real concepts of violence or war before the Terrans come, and they are, in fact, incapable of doing it. They can't, within their culture of dreaming, they have no concept of killing another person. Mm It's probably worth pointing out, they do understand killing for food, but they haven't made the connection between using that same skill on another person, or even wanting to. Probably because they don't dream with them. Well, as, as was noted, this is a very short book, and the main point around this is that Captain Davidson, through the actions of himself and his crew, introduces the idea of interpersonal violence into the dreaming culture of the natives. Starting with Selver, this one character who is very hard done by. Yes. I would, <laughs> that Captain Davidson rapes his wife. Yes. I would also like to point out that uh, prior to learning violence, they sang at each other. That was their main form. It was, it was kind of like um, almost the way some animals on, on Earth to, uh, compete uh, without actually having to harm each other. That's Sorry. how they would... Solve those kind of issues. We actually need to make a correction. They do have a concept of interpersonal violence, or interpersonal violence, excuse me. They do fight if a grievance is so bad, if a grievance has been allowed to grow so great and can't be resolved in any other way, they will have small honor duels, basically. Um, the winner of these duels is not the one who kills the other person, it's the one who slaps the other one to the ground first and then does this victory singing over them, as Marie said. Yes. So, I mean, violent by their standards, but it's basically just a glorified slap fight by human standards. Yeah, I should say, not interpersonal violence, but violence leading to murder. Yeah. Yeah, she's just so adorable. I mean, they're the are. <laughs> they're about half the average human height. They're covered in various colors of basically fuzz so that they blend into the forest. Green being the most common. Don't they have, like, a symbiotic thing growing on their fur? I feel like that might be the case. I think they've got stuff growing in it, but it's not like a symbiotic relationship where they benefit in any real way. Well, they blend in for the non-predators on the planet, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, they're the apex predator and they don't kill a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty peaceful place. Yeah, it's worth saying that not all the humans in this novel are terrible, terrible people. No, oh, there's Raj Lyubov, who has a mixed cultural name, it seems, but he is a sociologist, a psychologist kind of guy, and he was there initially to assess the over- overseeing the um, 
which is what the humans call the Creechies, the Ashians, as they are put into their sort of forced servitude. And he rapidly forms the conclusion that they are, in fact, beings and this is wrong, which doesn't jive very well with Captain Davidson's view of the world. And they get into some conflict over that. Actually, to um, back up a bit, a little backstory that's filled in there is, as mentioned, Captain Davidson, because he's a colossal asshole, um, rapes and then kills Selver's wife. Mm -hmm. Um, This causes Selver to absolutely freak out on a level unprecedented, at least in the human interactions with the Ashians. um, And he attacks Captain Davidson in effectively this blood fury. Um, because he's half Davidson's size and half his strength, Davidson beats him to a pulp. His face is severely scarred. Um, I think if one of his arms is broken. It's Raj, Lu- Lu- Raj Lubov, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, who actually saves Selver and nurses him back to health. And in nursing him and talking to him, starts to realize how much of a culture the humans have actually ignored. Yes. And then stuff happens. Uh, the Ashians get angry. They attack the human camp, and uh, there's fire. Lots of humans die. Lyubov also dies in this because he was kind of the wrong place at the wrong time. He was warned. To Notably, care. Captain Davidson doesn't. Yeah, and hilariously, Captain yeah. Davidson actually never dies. He's just left to um, live out his life on the planet, I believe. What's, what's great is Captain Davidson is, for his character, subject to the worst fate he could have. Um, the Ashians, I remember something else, there are cases where they have killed, where members of the species have killed each other. However, those who do are considered mad, and they're exiled to soul islands by themselves, and people sail out and drop food and then leave in a hurry. Captain Davidson, at the end of the book, expects them to kill him, and he's waiting for them to kill him. But they say, it's like, no, you're mad. We're, we're, we're treating you like a mad person, and they put him on one of these islands. Which, of course, drives him pretty much mental. Yeah, so instead of getting to die the noble death he wants, thinking himself the hero, he's forced to live every day knowing that he screwed up pretty badly. The best part is when uh, Selbert doesn't technically lie to the Hainish, but he's... But he, um, I can't remember how it was exactly he said it, but they they asked him a question. His response makes him believe Davidson is dead in this event, and the Hainish say, okay, and never really find Davidson, so there's no chance for him to be uh, rescued. So, yeah, yeah, he got his just desserts. Is that true? Have there been no more killings? I did not kill Davidson. Ah, uh, yes. Um, that's when the Hanish are asking if, after the violence with the humans, where the Athenians did start killing humans, because they... From their perspective, the humans weren't acting like people, they were acting like animals. So, in their case, it's like, okay, we can kill these things... But that does lead to them having violence amongst their own species. Yes, there's the unfortunate taint that humanity has brought to the Ashians that they could just attack each other in war as a concept is now with them. Mm-hmm. They've been gifted the dream, yeah. I think is the way it's put. Yes, it has. Yes, this does not win as many awards or gain as much recognition as The Left Hand of Darkness, but a few books do. Well, it's still on a Hugo. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, Hugo for best novella? Uh, yes. A Hugo for some shorter format. I'm not sure if it's novella or novelette. Um, what's nice about it is that despite our greatly disordered summary, it is a very simple narrative. Well, it's actually much, I find a much sort of cleaner, purer novel. It just kind of goes through its plot and it's done. It very <laughs> definitively has a beginning, middle, and an end that are quite obvious, yeah. Mm-hmm. The concepts that it explores aren't as interesting as The Left Hand of Darkness. 
Well, it's maybe because we're full of sexual tension. They're not as complex, but I, I do think there are a couple subtle moments that get very interesting. Um, again, the book was written, I forget the exact date, early 70s. The Vietnam War was happening either way. Let me just see if I can find the publication date here. Published in 1972. Um, the Vietnam War was happening when it was written, obviously. And one thing that's talked about is um, the idea of colonizing and colonizers. I mean, Le Guin is very clearly opposed to the whole concept of the Vietnam War. But what she does is one of the humans who are oppressing the Afshians is actually Vietnamese. She talks about the idea about, of how people who are oppressed today, depending on the circumstances, can become oppressors tomorrow. This book did receive a lot of criticism at the time for being a blatant allegory for the Vietnam War, which I don't actually think it is. Yeah, not really. I don't think it's a blatant allegory. I do think it's fair to say it takes a shot at the Vietnam War, no pun intended. Captain Davidson is a caricature of lots of people that you dislike in yeah. the Vietnam War. I think that would be the main thing there. The Asians don't really stand for the Vietnamese in any particular no. way. Actually, I, I like the idea of calling Captain Davidson a caricature because I don't think it's that he's a caricature of a person. It's he's a caricature in human form of several attitudes. Yeah. A certain style of masculinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tobacco chewing kind. Yeah. Well, again, he is effectively the commander from Avatar. Yeah. All right. I think we've almost exhausted the word for World is Forest, because there's really not too much else. I think we covered it. Fun, fun non sequitur about it. There okay. is a scene in the movie Full Metal Jacket where a copy of the book is seen on a bookshelf despite the fact that it would not have been published when the movie is set. Yeah, that's funny. I like that. <laughs> Thank you, Kubrick. Mm. <laughs> right. See, we told you Le Guin was well-regarded outside the science fiction and fantasy community. Yeah, Kubrick says it's good. You guys should go read this stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, there's very little chance that the people listening to this haven't read this. That's <laughs> true. Uh, for our very select audience out there, we appreciate both of you who listen. Yes. So, any closing comments anybody wants to add, aside from the fact that Le Guin is awesome and we highly recommend her? Uh, her latest short story collection called The Birthday of the World includes mostly new stories set in the Hainish cycle. And one of them does take place in Gethin. And is a, specifically about the first time a person goes into Kemmer. So, as a supplementary text to read along with this one, you might want to pick up a copy of that. I was going to say, we're talking about like 40 years almost separating these stories, right? Yeah. Really? Oh, it's cool. I'm going to flick into that. So, we hope our conversation has been illuminating on these two texts. <laughs> right. <laughs> implanted some ideas that will make you think for weeks. I think hoping that coherent will be enough. <laughs> I was going to say some closing things. I mean, obviously, we all recommend this book. Uh, on your personal list of sci-fi books or favorites or whatever you want to call it, where would you rank this one? Near the top? Near the bottom? I'd say that The Left-Handed Darkness is one of the few books that really sort of touched the inner part of my soul and made my heart sing, as it were. It's it's truly just beautiful and transcendent at, at, its, at its one moment. The Left Hand of Darkness is actually not my favorite book by Le Guin, <laughs> but it does rank pretty high up there, to the point where it probably doesn't make a difference. <laughs> yeah. um, having, not having read as much Le Guin, I can't comment 
compared to her other work. I, it's definitely become one of my favorite books, though. Oh, and I would like to make a comment out. Poor Ursula K. Le Guin. We're sorry we didn't do this podcast when we had initially just read these books. <laughs> so we would also like to thank you for being so brilliant and creating books we enjoyed this much. Yes, a year later, we still think they're great. Next time on the One Last Sketch Podcast, we're planning to do something a little bit different. Something we are? a little bit warmer. Yes, we are going to do a full-length commentary of a documentary released by the National Film Board of Canada called The Burning Times. <laughs> this will be legitimate and wonderful. We hope that you join us in however long it takes us to do this. We're doing it next week. Calm down. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks again for having us, Michael. Yes, thank you. All right. And thank you for joining me. This is Michael Wojcik signing off.